I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, this is Sugi with a note for our listeners. We spoke to Jamil John Kochai about how Afghanistan's wars are remembered on July 31st. The day after we spoke, the United States confirmed that the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, had been killed by a U.S. drone strike. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. Hey, do you remember our uh, season four finale episode? It was called Bullshit Saviors, one of my all-time favorite that was, episode that titles. Was, that was one of the greatest episode titles, definitely. <laughs> and we talked to Helen Benedict and Nadia Hashimi about uh, around the time that U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan. Which was like astonishingly almost a year ago. And, and this year, I mean, since then, right, huge numbers of people in Afghanistan have been trying to seek asylum and refuge elsewhere, including in the U.S. But I was reading that we're turning down a huge number of applications. I saw that. Uh, people who didn't make it in, onto the last evacuation flights are filing to enter other countries on humanitarian grounds. But they have a burden of proof. They have to show evidence that they'll be in serious danger if they stay in the country. And a lot of times their applications are denied. So I think that concept of a burden of proof reminds me a lot of things that we've been talking about recently in relation to war and literature. You were mentioning in an earlier episode the plaques in Lyon that commemorate resistance fighters killed by the Nazis. That's a what I would categorize as a long-ago war. We've done several episodes on the war in Ukraine, a war that is happening right now. I write about the Sri Lankan Civil War which went from 1983 to 2009. Um, and that war and the wars in Afghanistan are maybe what we might call intermediate term wars by that. I guess I mean that they're within living memory for most people, but also far enough in the past that we're starting to get maybe a broader picture about the way that they're going to be remembered. 
Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think that, you know, the the literature from the, the war in Ukraine is long way in the future. We don't really know what people are going to say about that, you know. Um, and, but literature does, in the end, play an incredibly important role in the memory of war. Um, and it takes a long time to produce, you know, so it doesn't have the same in-the-moment power as print journalism or cable news, but it can significantly shape the way that we think about war over time. And to talk about that, and specifically the way we remember the wars in Afghanistan. Today, we're going to be joined by Jamil John Kochai. Jamil John Kochai is the author of The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories, which has just been published. His debut novel, 99 Nights in Logar, which came out in 2019 from Viking, was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature. He was born in an Afghan refugee camp in Peshawar, Pakistan, but he originally hails from Logar, Afghanistan. His short stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Plowshares, and The O. Henry Prize Stories. Currently, he's a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. Jamil, welcome to the show. Oh, it's an absolute honor. Thank you so much for having me. So as Whitney and I were saying in the introduction, we've done a lot of episodes on war recently, um, thanks to our times. And Whitney was a war reporter in Iraq in 2006 and 2010 and wrote a novel about the war there. Um, I write mostly about the Sri Lankan Civil War and have a novel coming out about that. So we both think a lot about war and memory. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about when you were writing this collection, how you might have been thinking about trying to influence the way that the wars and here, I I guess I mean wars, plural, um, in Afghanistan are remembered and and what you learned as you did that about your own memory. Well, you know, I visited um, Afghanistan uh, numerous times throughout my my childhood and my upbringing at really like um, pivotal times in my own life, but also um, at pivotal times um, in the uh, sort of the political development of the country as well. So I was there in 1999 when I was six years old, um, when the when the Taliban were still in control. Um, and then I went again when I was 12 years old in 2005 in the in the early years of the uh, U.S. occupation when they still had a pretty strong hold on the security situation in the country as a whole. And then um, and then I went again in 2012 um, when I was 19. And then and then I went two times in 2017 and 2018. And I think the main thing, you know, when I'm when I think back on these memories and I think back on these experiences, um, what I was trying to capture, I think more so than anything else was um, this particular the this this microcosm of of the war as it as it existed in this small village in Logar with with my family members in particular you know I, I'm not sure how well I can speak to um, you know how how the war went about in in other provinces uh, you know I've done quite a bit of research on on war crimes and things uh, that that had occurred in, in provinces like Helmand and, and Kandahar but um, but Logar and, and Kabul those are the places where my family lived. And so those are the places that I knew most intimately. And I think when when I would write about these places and when I would think back on on my times there, um, one of the main things I wanted to emphasize was the way that the war and the occupation, the way that it seeped into almost every single aspect of my family members' daily lives, the the way they told jokes, the way they talked to each other, where where they could travel, um, what they could be, the career paths they could take. And it was just, it was so... You know, it was just um, it, it, it infected every aspect of their lives, and um, and so that was one of the things that you know, even beyond the um, the the explicit nature of the violence, the the, the material violence itself, um, I wanted to look at the ways that 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 the war affected daily life as well, and so um, yeah, that, that, I think that was one of the central things I tried to capture in my work. 
I also think of a book like this, and I also liked 99 Nights in Logar, which I read when it came out, um, is important in uh, the way, well, there are many ways to think about this, the way that globally people think about uh, a conflict like uh, Afghanistan, a way Americans do, the way people in Afghanistan think about it. I mean, all those kinds of memory are being built, right? And from an an American point of view, it's very, very important for the side of Afghans to be heard in these war stories, right? And I think that is building a kind of memory that, for instance, it took us a very long time to develop that uh, with the Vietnam War, you know? Um, and and that, that this is happening now seems very important addition to the way that that war is going to be thought of. I, I wonder, I'm, I'm sure you're conscious of that and trying to make sure that that side of the story is part of what you're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a, a lot of my work when when I'm, um, you know, when I'm doing research on my stories, when I'm thinking about the subject matter of my stories, that is that's one of my central concerns that, you know, the storylines and that the narratives and that the experiences that I hear from from my own family members um, in Afghanistan, in Logad and Kabul, um, that 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 those are the sort of experiences that I try to to highlight as much as possible, just because, you know, those are the stories that I grew up with. Those are the people that I know and love the most. And so, um, it, yeah, there is sort of this, uh, at least on my end, this concerted effort to make sure that the um, not necessarily, you know, I wouldn't say like it's the the Afghan side of the, of the story, because it's it, it's a very, you know, that's a very multifaceted perspective. But at least, you know, this this particular perspective that comes from the Afghans that I knew and loved growing up in, in Logad and Kabul and then and then here as well in West Sacramento. Well, yeah, I thought that was really interesting, too, to get the perspective and memories of people who are growing up in the West while these conflicts are going on, while they have ties back to the place that the conflict is occurring. That's also seemed to me like a new kind of memory to have about, or at least for me, uh, a new kind of memory to read about in fiction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, uh, at least for for me in particular, and I think for other members of our of our community here in here in the states, the 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 Afghan diaspora community, um, there was always, um, I, I would say, like this this sort of contentious feeling where um, you know uh, I struggled a good deal with this sense that I was that I was deeply connected to um, the country that that had invaded you know the country that that i had come from that my parents had come from that my parents had loved you know and so it was this very um you know it was this very two-sided feeling it was this feeling of being um uh of, of being torn apart a little bit and um and i think that's one of the things that that i tried to um, that i try to evoke in my stories as well this 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 odd this odd splitting this odd sense of being split and and of not knowing what to do about that feeling and um and i think this um uh this feeling of guilt that comes with it as well it's i think that's a that's a common common theme in, in many of my stories so um just listening to you talk i'm thinking about hungry ricky daddy which is a story in which your main characters are all going to college in california including ricky daddy who is from afghanistan like the narrator and ricky falls in love with nabila um, who's a palestinian activist and all of these characters are living in the contemporary west um and they've they're influenced by conflict in the way that you're describing um the conflicts that that they've brought with them um are affecting every section of their their lives and and in particular there's a passage in that story that kind of gets at like the the tearing apart maybe that you're thinking of in that story where ricky reads a particularly moving speech that is written for him by nabila 
Um, and her fiance, Yusuf Muhammad, is on a hunger strike after being arrested by Israeli police. And so Ricky decides to have a hunger strike of his own and reads a speech texted to him by Nabila. And I wonder if you would read that for us. Yes, absolutely. Um... Americans, it went on, you may feel the impulse to write a story about my husband. You could write, for example, of his melting flesh, of his bared rib cage, and of his stuttering breath. You could write of his eyes that no longer belong to him. And after you write the story, you may publish it and add it to your curricula. And when hundreds of your students read it, they will believe that the Palestinian dies of hunger romantically, fanatically, and without sense. And you would then rejoice in this funerary ritual and in your cultural and moral superiority. But my husband was arrested and imprisoned without charge because it is the military that rules our lands and yours and the intelligence apparatus that decides and all the other components of society merely sit from a distance and watch so as to avoid the explosion of our criminal bones. For I have not heard one of you interfere to stop the loud wail of death and the quiet torture of our dark bodies. It is as if every one of you has turned into gravediggers and everyone wears his military suit, the judge, the writer, the journalist, the merchant, the academic, and the poet. And I cannot believe that a whole society was turned into guards over our deaths and our lives. Nonetheless, you may be sure, all of you hearing this, that we will die satisfied and having satisfied. We do not accept being deported from our lands. We do not accept your courts and your laws. If you have passed over our country and destroyed it in the name of a god or a principle, you will not pass over our elegant souls which have declared disobedience. For the defeated will not remain defeated, and the victor will not remain a victor. History isn't only ever measured by the battles and massacres and prisons, but also by the incremental blood trip of the thinnest veins. Awudu billahi Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Then we cut the feed and posted everywhere and waited. The video barely made a blip. Thank you. Uh, okay, so there's a lot of interesting things going on in that passage that I want to talk about. Um, you seem to be specifically talking about the way that memory is, the way war is written about and the way it can be falsely written about. You know, like I have a lot of arguments with a lot of war narratives, which I think are very bad and do very bad things to the way that we think about war. I'm not going to go on a whole rant about that because I've done that in other places. But I assume that you have your arguments and that that piece is specifically arguing against ways of remembering that are incorrect, right? That are bad, that are perpetuate lies. Um, and maybe you could talk about that a little bit. And then also you point out that this particular story is told extremely well and it's gripping and seems quite true to me. And then it, nobody pays any attention. Like, so how do we, you're also talking about how stories get chosen to be remembered in a way, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, I, I should state that um, that that speech uh, within the within the within the story, it was largely inspired by um, by Samir Isawi's um, hunger speech. He was a um, Palestinian political prisoner that went on hunger strike. And and that story was it was largely um, the hung, story of Hungry Ricky Daddy as a whole was largely inspired by his plight. Um, but but I think, you know, when you're getting at that question of, of war narratives in particular, right, there's that there's that old cliche, of course, that. Um, that 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 history is written by the victors, right? And so, you know, one of the most frustrating things that I've had to um, witness throughout my life is is to watch not only 
um, you know, not only to to know about the the immense brutality of these different wars that occurred in these different invasions, but then you know after the war itself, after the invasions have ended, um, then there there typically there tends to be this attempt to sort of um, revise many of these narratives. I think this is something that you see happening with um, with some narratives regarding the the Soviet occupation, and um, and it, it, it's something that's also I think actively happening with the American occupation as well to sort of uh, revise it as sort of this uh, this benevolent attempt to um, you know to to save these people and um, and and something that just ended in tragedy and uh, and and you know I think that as much as possible with with many of my stories I. Uh, I attempt to resist that sort of that sort of revisionist nature, that that revisionist trend. I, you know, I want to I want to emphasize the ways that whether it's the Soviet occupation or whether it's the American occupation or whether it's the Israeli occupation, um, uh, I want to continue emphasizing the 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 brutality of of these um, of these political um, of these political events and uh, and to and to continue. Um, emphasizing the narratives that come directly from the mouths of those who who have been oppressed and and as much as possible you know to um you know i don't want to i don't want to ignore the 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 stories of of you know soldiers or or whoever else but um but i think there's already just so much emphasis placed upon those stories especially from from within america or wherever else um that 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 a lot of times my objective is to is to see what the other side has to say the side that was bombed the side that was occupied Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And one of the other things that passage does is, you know, it addresses audience. And as you're saying, you know, one person's blip is another person's world. And one of the things that I really love about your stories is it's my, I mean, I guess my specific experience that um, like the wars with which I am familiar, I guess specifically the war with which I'm familiar has really its own lexicon, its own code. And one thing that your stories do um, is they make a ton of references and often quite fast. And there's a lot of trust in the reader, um, to be able to parse that information. I mean, you are, I mean, I guess there's two ways to look at it. Like one, either you're, you're sort of centering an audience that knows that lexicon, that it has that vocabulary at its fingertips, or two, you are like just really crediting, crediting us with being smart and being able to like infer and, and figure out what that, um, what that lexicon is and to put all those pieces together, which I find to be a really satisfying part of being. And of course you can be doing both of those things at once, um, and, you know, the examples that I can think of, you know, um, in occupational hazards, there's, I mean, this, this, this incredible, like, kind of list making, um, or in playing Metal Gear Solid um, 5, the, the Phantom Pain, the, the father's, tr- like, really painful backstory is, like, on first reference is very swiftly articulated. And that had me wondering what you want your stories to teach us about the kinds of explanations we should expect as readers and the work that we should be doing. Well, you know, I do think um, I do think you're right that that I do sort of have um, high expectations for my readers. You know, I, I 
um, at the same time, you know, first and foremost, my my goal in, in writing a story is to make sure that it's a um, that it's a well-crafted story and that the reader is going to enjoy the story and that they're going to laugh and, and, and cry along with my characters. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I'm thinking about a story um, and I'm thinking especially about like this notion of, um, of explanation or, or, of, um, or the way that I, I include history into my narratives, um, you know, I'm thinking about it from the perspective of the, the narrator um, themselves, right? So, um, you know, if I'm writing uh, uh, a story that's very close to a, a narrator like, uh, like the one from playing Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain, this, this character who has grown up with these stories their entire lives, they know everything about the Soviet occupation because, because that's what they've grown up. Those are the first stories that they've ever told. For me, like in terms of craft, it would just make sense that that, that would sort of be a given. And then, and then you know, I, I try to reference it as much as possible, but at the, you know, I uh, at the same time I don't want to bog down the story by delving into sort of this. Oh, let me now break down the history of the Soviet occupation for my reader because they might not know. I'm like I'm gonna reference it. I want I want the I want the uh, I want my reader to get to get an understanding of the shadows of that occupation, to get an understanding of the after effects of that occupation. And then, and then at the same time, like, you know, continue the story with the hope that, um, you know, that the reader then will do that work to, to see what else they can discover. Um, but, but, it, but it certainly does, you know, it, it, it changes from story to story with, with the tale of Dilly's reversion, for example, you know, that's, that's a narrator that I think is, it's much more distant than playing Metal Gear Solid five and so with that story you know and because it's focused on a phd student like that's a story where i took like literal historical documents and just put them right into the middle of the story and uh and it's a longer story as well so i felt like i had more space for that but but again you know it did it did come with this sort of this objective of making sure that these different moments in history um, you know whether that's Winston Churchill burning down villages, or um, or you know um, U.S. military bases uh, being used uh, to uh, to to carry out systematic sexual abuse. Um, I I don't want those narratives to die, and in those instances, that's where I felt like okay, this is really important that I actually get the document on the page here for my reader to see that you know like this is this is what it was, and and here's the evidence. And, and, and in that instant, it made sense to me. So it, it varies from story to story, I would say. I want to connect form and revision here uh, because we're talking about re not revision, not revising your work necessarily, but the way work is formed and the idea of revising history. The, the novel that I wrote, I ended up writing backwards because I was fighting against the form of the war story, the American war story in which... Mm. The soldier goes to war, experiences combat, proves whether they're a man or not in the combat, and then is yeah. rewarded at the end. Like, that's yeah. the worst possible arc, right? <laughs> it's also the arc of A New Hope in Star Wars. You know, it's a very it's a very popular American arc. It's a lie. Combat's never proven anything to anyone, especially not in Iraq. Um, and uh, so it's, it's an, you know, I, I had to find a way to deconstruct that. And the only, one of the ways was that I couldn't write in that form. Because the form was partly was, was partly forcing me to tell that kind of story, right? So I wonder if part of your revisions and your experience in your experiments with form here, you've written a story, Occupational Hazards, that Sugi mentioned that's in the form of a resume. And you're talking about putting historical documents into the stories, which happens. Like, is that a way of deconstructing the sort of Western form of story, which also, you know, is like pushing against, you know, it also sort of tends to impose a kind of narrative on these things. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that actually that gets at a lot of the intention, you know, that behind many of my stories. I think when when I am when I'm experimenting with forms, it's exactly this idea of of trying to deconstruct or trying to revise many of these narratives that I had grown up with my entire life. Right. So and one of the things that I try to resist, I think, in my work, um, you know, to, to varying degrees of success is um, is like the trauma narrative. Right. And and that's one of the things that it's it's a huge topic in my story because it's a huge it's a huge subject in my own life. It's one of the things that, you know, my, my parents carried with them their entire lives. It's one of the things that, that from a very young age, I understood that my parents had this, this war trauma inside of themselves and they carried it, they carried it with them um, and everything they did and, and in their stories, especially. And so when, when trying to navigate those stories, especially like that's when, that's when the form of, um, you know, I, I talked about this in a different um, interview, but um, you know, I, I actually really appreciate fiction writing because of its uh, ability, because of its um, the, 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 the possibility it allows to to explore these stories in different ways. Right. So if I want to um, tell a story about a, a father's trauma of war and the way that it creates this distance between himself and his son. I can now do that through a video game or if I want to, you know, explore a subjects, the, 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 the entire narrative of their lives and their relationship to labor and war. Well, then I can do that in the form of a resume like it, 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 it reorients how I'm thinking about these stories and it allows me to see these characters and these narratives in, in totally new ways that I wouldn't have um, that I wouldn't have even begun to think about um, when I first started writing those stories. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So at the beginning of this episode, um, before you joined us, Whitney and I were talking about um, Afghan refugees and, and the burden of proof that they face as they're trying to exit the country and enter perhaps, you know, the United States um, kind of can you show that you will be in danger, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that's so interesting about what you're saying is that through fiction, you are really underlining certain facts, um, right? Like these are ways of actually emphasizing histories. Um, and that's fascinating considering that your work isn't, I mean, oftentimes it's not realistic. Um, and it's also just interesting as, I mean, That's as a right. diasporic writer, I've, I've been really interested in revision and plot lately and was teaching a class about this in the fall. And in reading your stories, I was so interested in the way that revision is sometimes like kind of built right in, um, that there is a pre-existing story that the story is revising. And, you know, in the opening story, for example, you know, the, the video game that you refer to, the protagonist is attempting to use it to revise history, to alter the course of events. And there are events in the stories that are revisited over and over. Um, and I'm curious about what you think about the relationship between diaspora and revision and whether as diasporic writers, we're, we're always kind of beginning at a point of revision. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, I would agree with that in a lot of different ways, especially with the the Afghan diaspora community. Um, you know, living in this country from a very young age, I was so inundated with with false narratives about Afghanistan um, and, and about Afghans. And there was so much American military propaganda and, and then, you know, just straight up racism about Afghanistan that um, that when I first started, um, I did feel the sort of this intense impulse to be like, okay, the first thing I need to do with my stories is I need to revise 
these false narratives, right? And in some instances that that led to like really, really fruitful stories, right? Because, um, you know, I think my entire life, uh, when I would think about stories about Afghanistan, especially ones that were, um, you know, created or, or written or filmed in America, and that was, you know, released in America, Afghans were either they're either barbarians or they're victims. And so even like the act of like first, you know, uh, conceptualizing or visualizing like an Afghan character as a hero or an Afghan character as being capable of saving themselves or being capable of saving their own family members. Like to me, that was that was that was that was a revisionist narrative to begin with. Right. And so, um, you know, uh, it's also a thing that, you know, I think in certain instances, um, can can be a little bit limiting for me as well because I'm starting from this point of like um, it's almost re- reactionary like I, I want to resist these narratives so badly that that at times like I'm starting from a place where I'm always responding instead of creating a new mm-hmm. and so that's something that like I think as I develop and progress as a writer I think I want to sort of be able to like break out of this mold of always be reacting to narratives of always feeling like I need to revise narratives and hopefully to to write something utterly new and radical and I think that also might be rooted in my impulse to sort of um, explore these different narrative forms as well because I'm I'm just so tired of the same stories being told and I just want to uh, let me see if I can do something new here I also think the trauma uh is another thing, in addition to trying to change narratives that are incorrect, that trauma is a thing that forces you to play with chronology and form because it's the only way to sort of get that across. Now, you're at Stanford, and Adam Johnson, who's a friend of mine, teaches there, and he talks a lot about trauma in his writing and is very and taught me a lot of to, you know, ways to think about using form to express that. Um, I also think, too, one of my... I think increasingly highly of this story by Donald Bartholomew called Indian Uprising, which is a story that's really about repeated uh, colonialism and violence uh, it per- perpetrated by America, by France, by multiple countries. And it's it's a it's a story that's told extremely experimentally, that is in multiple time frames, that doesn't have any sort of real plot to it. But it's really does a great job of, of trying to talk about the factual history of how uh, colonialism has happened and how these things repeat over time. And so they're happening in the same time frame rather than trying to be historically done, you know, as you would in like a long tone, right? Eventually, these kinds of repeating crimes force you into experiments, I think. Um, That's not a question. I'm just just talking to you about it. And I wonder what you think about that, though. No, I mean, I, uh, you know, I think I think that's exactly on point. I think um, the, the other thing I would add to that is that one of the things that I've experienced in sort of um, you know, I had to come to terms with growing up my entire life is, um, is the, is the surreal nature of, of war trauma as well. Mm -hmm. Like the things that my parents had experienced in their lives were, were oftentimes so horrific that it bordered on the realm of, of the surreal, you know, like these, these, these underground dungeons, um, filled with filled with starving prisoners and and in these incredible war crimes that were committed in in Kabul and in other places and and these these you know these almost like um you know i i wouldn't even know how to begin to 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 describe it it's 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 borders on unreality it borders on the epic the nature of the violence that was inflicted upon them during this war by by a superpower right and so when so especially when i'm trying to think about 
writing about war trauma or writing about how one how one begins to conceptualize war trauma, I, I often find myself having to delve into the realms of the surreal or magical realism or these experimental modes of fiction just because the the incidents themselves seem so unreal. And 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 in and in certain ways I think I'm trying to I'm trying to reflect that sense of unreality and how how it takes years and decades to even to even come to terms with with what had actually happened to them before their eyes and and how they can even consume that or 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 begin to begin to think through that decades and years later. Yeah, that story where the that couple stitches back together their son. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, and it, you know there are it, I think there's a reason why motifs like that exist. Like there's also a great novel Frankenstein in Baghdad, which is about a person stitching together body Beautiful parts. Novel. You know um, uh, that is about trauma and war trauma. And there's also a retelling. As I was thinking about your book, um, and which also is in conversation with your novel, um, one of the kind of constant bits of dialogue that I saw kind of occurring across time and place in the way that Whitney's talking about is between, of course, the father and the son. And I was thinking about um, how that kind of engages the question of trauma. And I was remembering Nam Lee's um, story, Love and Pity and Honor and Pride and Compassion and Sacrifice. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but... Um, no, unfortunately not. It um, It's great. It's just like um, there is also like a kind of metaphysical aspect to it where you're, the story teaches you it kind of has you collect the right set of information, but for a totally different reason than the reason you thought, which is the thing I, I love about Nam's work. But it is also, you know, this diasporic son who is a writer who's collecting information from his father. And the information is, um, you know, you get this expectation of what kind of traumatic story might be told, who might profit from it. Um, and then there's this moment at the end, I, I, I now won't spoil it for you. And also for our listeners who haven't read the story, it's fantastic. Um, and it's in the boat um, and originally was in Zoetrope. But it's sort of like this way that um, there's like something transactional, right? Also going on between the generations, like the transaction of the story and who gets to control it, which is so interesting to me. And, and also, I mean, um, the problem that you identified before sort of being in reaction to things is one that I that I think about very much kind of in relation to these intergenerational relationships. Yeah, you know, and and this is one of the things that that I've that I've written about before in the past is that um, the the transactional nature of the the uh, of the way these stories get passed down from one generation to the next, right? And I've and I've written in the past that that at times I feel I feel almost like a thief or a middleman because I'm taking you know I'm I'm listening to my parents' stories, and when I began doing this, when I began listening to their stories and and interviewing them and recording them um, with the you know with the with the explicit objective of writing them down, you know I went into it very idealistic. I you know I thought I was I was going in. I'm I'm telling the untold stories and I'm I'm uncovering these these hidden war crimes and you know I thought I was doing this this very virtuous thing. But as but as but as I progressed into with my novel and with my later work, I, I began to realize that. Um, you know, this weird thing was happening to my stories um, when when they first when I first began to to sell the stories, right? And and it, and I did have these this feeling, right, that I was that I was taking my parents and my family members their most their most precious memories, their most devastating memories, and then and then selling them to an American audience for 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 their entertainment or something like that, right? And 
And that's a, that's a feeling that, to be honest, like I continue to struggle with that. And I'm not, you know, uh, 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 like, uh, alhamdulillah, you know, I'm very fortunate that my parents and my family members, they've been very supportive of my career and they're very eager um, to, to help me with my writing. But, but at the same time, it's, it's something that I'm constantly thinking about with my stories is this, is this idea of like, um, you know, to make sure that I'm not taking their stories just to pander them to, to this American audience, just to turn them into like a form of entertainment. I want to make sure that, that I'm, that I'm doing their stories, a, a certain form of justice that, that, that in the end, you know, that some good may come of these stories beyond just, um, you know, me, me getting some, some extra book sales or publications or whatever else. Well, I mean, the work is so beautifully done. Um, I think especially at the end of Occupational Hazard, the way that the these characters also are given space to speak back to the character of the writer um, seems like such a great way to do that. Um, yeah. As yeah, as narrative strategy, I just I'm, I mean, I really um, I really admire that. And I'm curious to hear you talk about, you know, you're writing about um, things that have occurred in your family. And then you also spoke about research and I'm so curious to hear about, you know, you've published um, several stories in The New Yorker, just famous for its fact checking. And we're talking about this kind of gray area of fact and fiction. And (laughs) what is that process like for you to be fact checked in your stories, which range from, you know, putting these real documents in there to having, um, you know, a a person turn into a monkey, like to possibly surface (laughs) surfacing real knowledge that may actually not be documented elsewhere in the way that a traditional fact check might require. Yeah, you know, it was a fascinating process to to say the least, especially um, with the haunting of of Haji Hotuk, um, the the second story that I published in The New Yorker, um, one of the fact checkers um, you know, I, I let them know that many of the uh, elements of the story, it comes from my own my own life and, and from my father's life and from his stories. And so the fa- fact checker like literally asked for my father's number and called him directly and was like, you know, there's these details about life. Can can we use that? And they had like this long conversation about his time as a um, as a as a mujahid, a, a rebel fighter in Logar. And um, and so, you know, that was like that was something I totally wasn't expecting. Um, but, you know, my father was was totally up for it. And, he you know, he had this long conversation with him. And um, and, uh, and and it was something that, to be honest, I was like a little bit. Um, I was like, I was like, I don't know how to describe it. I felt like, you know, it was good that, that they were like keeping me on my toes with this. Like I was, I kind of appreciated the fact that they, you know, they went directly to my father and were making sure that I wasn't telling his story wrong, you know? And I, I, I kind of liked that that actually happened and that, you know, my, my father heard it from, from someone else's mouth and, and he was still like, okay with it. Like that was actually like a big moment of relief for me. But, um, but yeah, that was totally, that was totally like a, like a surreal moment where, <laughs> where my father is, you know, getting this call from like a New Yorker fact checker uh, because they're, they're so like, you know, for, for such a long time, they'd had such a reputation, you know, for the, the New York factor. And then, and now my father's talking to one on the phone and in, in his living room in West <laughs> Sacramento. So that, that was totally surreal. And um, uh, yeah, a, a sort of odd experience at the same time. Well, you know, Bartholomew also published almost all of his stories, including, I think, Indian Uprising in the New Yorker. So he must have had the same experience. Um, uh, it's been a year since the U.S. troops withdrew from Afghanistan and several months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Did the war in Afghanistan pave the way for other wars? Is there some way that 
introduction of violence into the global sphere allows other people to imagine violence. You know, the, the Republicans have said, well, it's because the U.S. left Afghanistan that Russia felt empowered to invade Ukraine. I think that's bullshit myself, but I'd be curious to know what you think. Um, but I do think that showing the possibility of war, America having the wars that it had in, in Iraq and Afghanistan introduces war leads to more war, in my view. Um, yeah, but I, I wondered if you can think about the way that those wars that America and the Soviet Union fought in Afghanistan changed the way that we're thinking about war now or the possibility of war now. Um, yeah, you know, you know, I'm not so sure about on the international scale when, when, when the Soviet Union um, in, invaded Afghanistan and then and then of course that that invasion that occupation was was a total failure right and then to see you know um, uh, 20 years later the US do sort of the almost the exact same thing you know the, so so you, I mean you know I'm not sure if, if one war caused the other one um, uh, explicitly or if there's this, this direct correlation between these two wars um, but but you know I think there's there there's something to the, that old adage that that violence begets violence and and uh, what I do think you know um, if not on on an international scale domestically within Afghanistan itself I would certainly say that the that the U.S. invasion and that the that the brutality of the occupation over these past twenty years it created like sort of um, a, a microcosm of many like mini wars and what you what you saw happening in in a lot of in a lot of different villages and in a lot of different provinces and within families themselves is that um, you know uh, families were torn apart one side would join the Taliban and the other side would join um, the, the the American or the government forces and so and so in that way you know I would say that you know certainly that the war created more wars within Afghanistan um, and um, yeah, you know, and, but, uh, but I guess, I guess I'm not sure. Um, that's a fine answer. I mean, if you don't, you know, I, I do, I think, I mean, I think that Putin seems to have been affected by the loss of, quote unquote of, you know, in, in Afghanistan loss of prestige. And I think that it's possible that that plays a role in his desire to invade another country and try yeah. to be more successful, you know, as a you Russian know, it, leader. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because now that you, the U.S. has left Afghanistan, uh, I think on an international scale, that there might be this feeling that oh, you know, like this big player has left the arena and now and now it's open. You know that that it's like whoever wants to to dive in here into Central Asia can. Um, but but at the same time, you know, I'm not. You know, I'm not I'm not exactly sure what to say about that on on sort of like an in, like an international level. Um, it's a it's it's a fascinating question. Something I'd I'd like to think about more. I think your point about the way wars create more wars within families is really well taken, and that's one of the um, subtleties of your fiction that I that I so appreciated in reading this really fantastic collection. Um, so, Jamil, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And um, we want to remind our listeners not to miss The Haunting of Haji Hotak and also 99 Nights in Logar, which is a really beautiful novel. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. And, um, and I hope to be, you know, I hope to be back sometime in the future. We would love that. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. And the podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. And speaking of Ann Knigendorf, 
she is publishing this month uh, her book that she wrote with her sister, Leslie Knigendorf, Kansas City Scavenger, The Ultimate Search for Kansas City's Hidden Treasures. I went to their kickoff, uh, went to, I don't know if it was their kickoff reading, but their reading just last week. So congratulations, Anne. I'm a fan. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.